morning, Edgewater. Um, it's definitely weird not having you here with me this morning, but I'm glad that you can join from your own living room or wherever you are. Uh, before we dive into the word this morning, let's uh, go to, before the Lord in prayer. Father, I do thank you that we have the ability and the opportunity to um, continue to join together even virtually uh, as, as different as it is, as worse than it is than the real thing. Um, we do thank you that we can um, still come together around your word even as we're physically separate from one another. And I just ask that you would be with us this morning, that your spirit would be working in our hearts as we open your word. Um, and I pray for Fran Franz this morning as this couldn't have been an easy Christmas for her, uh, both recovering from her fall and recovering in the same care facility that Bill passed away in about a year ago. Um, just lift her up to you, Lord, and ask that you would uh, be with her, especially this morning, um, that you would comfort her. We can't be with her, we can't visit her, but you are with her, Father. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Christmas is over. It's definitely been an unusual Christmas and an unusual year. I doubt any of us had a Christmas like what we're used to. But what sort of reaction do you get when you hear Christmas is over? Maybe you're looking forward to being able to go back to your normal routine Maybe you're not looking forward to having to go back to your normal routine. Maybe you're just glad the work of it all is finally over. I think to one degree or another, a lot of us are probably feeling like Christmas was the last thing I had to look forward to. Like, now that Christmas is over, there is nothing on the horizon for me but winter, and COVID, and quarantining. Christmas is over. Now what? And even without COVID, I think that's a question we've all probably asked ourselves more than once. I, I have a very distinct memory of being a kid. I don't remember how old I was. I don't really remember anything about Christmas. But it being like mid-morning Christmas Day, and already feeling like, it's just over. Like, it's over. All of that buildup, all of that anticipation, and it's just gone. And it wasn't about you know, being dissatisfied with presents or with the celebration or any of that. It was just this feeling like a deflated balloon, like all of that buildup and it's over. 
Christmas is over, and the four Sundays of Advent are over, but we do have one final passage in our Advent series this morning. And so if you are feeling that post-Christmas deflated balloon feeling, I hope that the passage this morning will help fill you up again. Because Christmas might be over, but Jesus' birth didn't happen inside of a vacuum. God didn't take on human flesh, send some angels to say peace on earth, goodwill to men, and then say, all right, job well done, everybody. Because I think the reason that we're left after Christmas with that question, now what, is because we put so much buildup and so much anticipation into Christmas that we, we end up treating it like an end in and of itself rather than a beginning. Because Christmas isn't the end, but the end is coming. That beautiful, romantic picture we have of the young mother smiling down on her newborn son is going to end with that same mother looking up as her son gasps for breath on a Roman cross. Our Advent series has been looking at who Jesus really is, not just what he did, what he does, as important as those things are, but who he really is, what his heart for us is like, and what a great gift he is to us. And no conversation about what Jesus is really like would be complete without talking about his love for us. And no discussion about his love for us would even be worth having without talking about the end that love took him to. Our text this morning is John 13, 1. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we'll be concentrating on the second half of that verse this morning, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus says in John 15, 13, no greater love has anyone than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus certainly displayed that in all of its glorious humility. He loved us to the cross He loved us to his death. And we know that, and we have an idea of how ugly an end, how awful an end that was. But I think sometimes that we we are so familiar with the cross, we, we deal with the cross so much, and we should, that the ugliness of it tends to fade. We see a a beautiful, simple wooden cross or a gold or silver cross on a necklace, and we, we see the love of Christ. And we should, 
but his love is only properly seen with the ugliness of the cross on full display as well. And Jesus' death was an ugly, shameful business. One of his closest friends sold him out for cash. His other friends abandoned him, denied him, pretended they never knew him, tried to go back to their old lives. The powerful wanted him dead because he was a threat to the status quo. Witnesses lied under oath to try to get a false conviction. The local politician knew what was going on, but, you know, riots are bad press, so let's just try to get this one over with as quickly as we can and sweep it under the carpet. The police punched and slapped and tortured him and joked about him as they did it. They put a robe around him and said, is this robe to your majesty's liking? Here's a crown fitting for the king of the Jews. No, don't, don't shy away from it, your majesty. You know what they say, uneasy hangs the head that wears the crown. And as he hung on the cross, his own people, the people he came to save, continued to laugh at him. You can make the lame walk. Let's see you walk with that nail in your feet. You say you came down from the Father. Come down from the cross and we'll believe you then. All of this leading to the end. A slow, excruciating end where he was left after all of the beatings and the torture and the mockery to die so slowly from exposure and dehydration and suffocation. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved us to the end. He loved us to death. But this was no normal end. His death was no normal death. He loved us to death, but that death by rights was mine, not his. His death was the perfect, spotless, once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. He took on the weight of all of my sin and all of your sin and all of the sin of every single one of his own. And on top of that, he bore the weight of the wrath and anger and justice of the Father. We've all felt to varying degrees the weight of our sin. Sometimes just a prick of the conscience Sometimes just kind of a heaviness of heart. Sometimes feeling breathless under the crushing weight of it, feeling like it's going to grind us into the dust. But even when we feel our sin at its most soul-crushing, I'm still only feeling my sin. And let's be honest, just a tiny fraction of the sin I've committed. But Jesus took on the weight 
of all of my sin and all of your sin and all of his own sins. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky, like the sand in the sea, and Jesus took the weight of it all. Countless people sinning countless times. And that burden was so heavy it made even God's knees buckle. It made him sweat drops of blood at the mere thought of it and made him cry out to the Father and plead with him, if there's another way, if it's your will, please let this cup pass from me. It made him cry out in despair at the end, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And really contemplate that for a moment. The Son of God, who had spent eternity in the presence of the Father, in perfect unity and love with him. The Father who had spent eternity delighting in his Son. And then the Son took on human flesh and emptied himself of all of his glory. He knew hunger and exhaustion and ridicule and discouragement, but through all of that, he still knew that he was the Father's beloved Son, and the Father was well pleased with him. Now, the Father looks at him not as the beloved Son, but as the most gut-wrenchingly evil criminal. That feeling we get in the pit of our stomachs when we hear about a child molester, or a serial killer, or Hitler, pales in comparison with what the father felt when he looked at his son. He saw nothing but the countless sins of those countless people. And for the first time in eternity, Jesus was alone. We can't begin to fathom the depths of anguish and despair that went into that cry. Not, not my father, but my God, where are you? Why have you left me? In the end, that's what killed him, not the cross. He had never ceased to be in unity with the father. The father's love was literally life to him, and it was removed. Jesus experienced, not metaphorically, not as a picture, but in reality, the fullness of hell in all of its horrors poured out on a single man in a single moment. Who could survive that? Only God could experience that and not have body and soul just utterly obliterated. Having loved his own. He loved them to the end. I think we all know what it feels like to come to Jesus again, to repent of the same sin again. And when we feel that shame, we imagine Jesus standing there with his arms crossed and a stern look on his face he just says, again, again. And then reluctantly, 
agreeing to forgive us. Some of you might even have thought, you, you don't understand, I can't, I can't go back again. I've gone back too many times. I've gone too far away. I can't go back. Not again. There, I can't even hope for this stern reluctance. I've gone, I've gone so far, I don't know how to go back. And if I did, all I could expect are anger and rejection. But neither of these is who Jesus is. Remember from Bill's sermon last week, Jesus has promised, whoever comes to me, I will never, never cast out. Jesus' love for his own is not some flash in the pan that blazes up and then is gone. The cross wasn't some hasty moment of passion that has cooled. When we come to him in true repentance, we don't find anger and rejection. We don't find stern reluctance. Instead, when we come to him and say, you're not going to believe this, but I, I did it again, we find a gentle Savior who says, I already know. You can't surprise me with this. I have already loved you to the end. No, you don't understand. I've hated you. I've betrayed you. I've made a laughing stock of the love you've shown me. I know. I know it better than you do. I've loved you to the end of that, too. I, I'm going to do it again. You, you know that I don't want to, but I am. I know that, too. I've already borne that too. Listen to me. I have loved you to the end. It's finished. This is the kind of love Jesus has for his own. And if you're watching this morning and thinking, okay, that's for his own, but I'm not one of his own, so this isn't for me. I couldn't hope for that kind of reception from him. Remember, again, he has promised, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those who are not his own, who come to him, will find that he has already loved them to the end. This is the kind of love Jesus has for his own. As I was preparing for this morning, and trying to figure out, like, how do I, in all of my limitations, possibly begin to describe the limitless love of Christ? How can I possibly di di digest all of this into one thought for us? The word that kept pushing its way to the front of my mind was insatiable. His love for his own is insatiable. It can't be stopped. It can't be satisfied. It can't be turned away. Nothing can keep it from its own. 
What is Jesus like? Who is he? At the core of his heart is a love for his own that is all-consuming. He delights to shower his own with his love, no matter the cost or the pain to himself. Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He delights in his love for his own. He knew from before time began what that love would cost him, what end that love would bring him to, but none of it could stop him. Bill asked the question last week, how could we abuse a love like that? And he's right, how could we? And yet our hearts can be so cold to him. But when we come face to face with that all-consuming, all-giving love and are overwhelmed by it, it should cause our cold hearts to warm. His affection for us should stir our own affections for him. His insatiable appetite for showing us his love should cause our own appetites to grow and grow so that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy like his love can. And so we come to him again and again, not in the arrogance of abusing his love like we can, but with simple confidence in his love. His love is insatiable. The cross, death, separation from the Father, our own sin time and again could not turn his love from us. He still loves us. He has to. We can't sin our way out of his love. We can't surprise him with its ugliness or its frequency. He already knows. He knows it better than we do because he has come to the end and he loves us. Nothing can take away his appetite for showering us with his love. He has loved us to the end of our sin and now that our sin has been removed, what could ever cool his love for us again? He has loved us to the end of his life. He has loved us to the end of our sin. And we might be tempted to think that it ends there, but I don't think that his insatiable love is satisfied yet. Because notice where in John's gospel his, our text this morning is placed. It doesn't start off the crucifixion. It starts off the Last Supper. John spends more time on this final night Jesus has with his disciples than any of the Gospels. He spends almost 20% of his entire account of Jesus' entire earthly ministry on this one final night. And he begins by saying, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And he doesn't merely use love as a starting off point and then leave it 
aside. He uses some form or the other the word loves 34 times in just those four chapters. It was a night that was saturated with love. So when John says that Jesus loved his own to the end, he means he loved them to his death. He means he loved them to the end of their sin. But I think he also means that he kept on showing his love over and over and over all the way up to the end. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that he earnestly desired to spend that last Passover with them. They were still arguing about who's going to sit at Jesus' right and left in the kingdom, who's going, to watch, who's going to wash whose feet before the feast. And yet Jesus doesn't grow discouraged. He doesn't think, I've shown them enough love for now. He continues to pour himself out onto them. One of my favorite authors, Dorothy Sayers, describes Jesus' heart that night by imagining him saying to himself, they still can't understand. They're being silly and quarrelsome, but one must be gentle with them because the time is so short. In just a few short hours, Jesus knows full well that the end is coming. He will be arrested and tortured and killed. He will bear the weight of our sin and the weight of the Father's justice. And yet, he delights in showing his love while there's still time. Just listen to some of the things that he earnestly desired to tell his disciples while there was still time. John 13, 10, you are clean. 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. 14, 2, and 3, in my Father's house are many rooms, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 14.6, I will ask the Father and he will send you another helper. 14.18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 14.23, if anyone loves me, and keep, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 14.26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things. 14.27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 15.5, whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. 15.9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 15.11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 1622, you, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
1627, the Father himself loves you. 1633, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in his prayers to the Father for them, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. I have made known to them your name, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus stood at the foot of the cross, stood at the precipice of our sin, about to plunge into its depths. He stood ready to commit the greatest act of love in all of creation, and yet his love still wasn't satisfied. On death's door, Jesus spends four chapters eagerly pouring out his love on his own. If we were in his shoes, we would want the disciples to finally start pulling their own weight and show us some love for a change. Or we'd want to withdraw, you know, have some me time, recharge the batteries before this awe-inspiring act of love. But the stores of his love are so fast, they cannot be depleted even by the cross. And so he continues to be unsatisfied with how much love he has shown them and spends the night showering them with his love. He knows his time is drawing to an end. He knows the time is so short. He knows just what an end is waiting for him. And yet his love doesn't falter or grow weak. Instead, it has an added intensity knowing that there's so little time left and so much he wants to tell them, so much love he needs to show them, but the time is so short. It's as if he's saying, soon I will be arrested, so tonight I eagerly desire to wash your feet. Soon, Peter, you will deny me, and so tonight I eagerly desire to tell you that you are clean. Soon I will sweat drops of blood. And so tonight I eagerly desire to give you a new covenant in my blood. Soon I will be beaten and tortured and killed. And so tonight I eagerly desire to tell you that you will bear much fruit in me. Soon the Father will turn his face away from me and so tonight, I eagerly desire to tell you that the Father loves you. Soon I will leave you. And so tonight, I eagerly desire to tell you that I will come back for you. His love for his own is insatiable. His love overflows to the point that we ourselves are overflowing with it, and yet the torrent still doesn't stop. He delights to overwhelm us with his love. He is never satisfied. His heart is continuing to cry out, more, more. I have to show them more. The time is so short. Our love is so marred and twisted by our sin that we have a hard time believing that Jesus could actually love us like that. 
Our love is so mercenary, even in its purest forms. Yes, I love my kids. Yes, I love my spouse. But I, I would do anything for them. I would die for them. I, right now, I just really need fill in the blank. I would die for them, but I just wish they could fill in the blank. Yes, I love you as deeply and as selflessly as I possibly can. But what about me? I know that if it were me and my kids in the upper room that night, I would have ended up saying something like, um, I'm about to die for the three of you tomorrow, so how about you quit your fighting and one of you come over here and wash my feet, huh? But a love that never comes to the end of itself, a love that has no concern for itself and endless concern for its beloved, we have a hard time believing that's real even when it is given to us again and again. And you might be thinking, that sounds really wonderful. I wish I could have that, but that's how John described that last night with the disciples, and that's over. I would love to be able to have been there in that room. I would love to have Jesus spend a night showing me his love that way. But John said he already loved them to the end, so am I just out of luck? But Jesus loves us with the same intensity and insatiableness that he did 2,000 years ago. And as I was meditating on that fact, I kept being reminded of Nyerka Santos. A lot of you, unfortunately, probably never knew Nyerka. She was a part of our church for a long time, and then she just stopped for a while. She lived right across the alley, um, but she just wasn't here. She wasn't involved with anything. And eventually she came back. And to be honest, she was a little hard-hearted when she came back. But you could see her slowly starting to grow. And then all of a sudden, there was this explosion of growth that I saw in her. She, she was a part of our community group for a long time, and when she first came back, she would actively discourage us from inviting new people to group. No, 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 we got a good thing going here. I don't want to ruin it. Don't bring anybody else in. But now, all of a sudden, Yurk is inviting people to group, and she's encouraging all of us that we should be doing that more, too. She went from, I have a good thing, I don't want to lose it, to this is a good thing that our church needs. We need to bring this to them. Maybe even more surprisingly, Nyerka joined the greeters ministry and was there with a giant smile on her face welcoming people to church on Sunday morning. All of a sudden, I saw this explosion of love and joy in her that I at least had never seen before. And then even more suddenly, she died. 
She was out walking her dogs one morning and she was found in her chair in her living room that afternoon. And I remember thinking at the time about how relentlessly God had pursued her to the end. He was never satisfied with how much love he had shown her. He never thought, yeah, she's not really involved in the body of Christ in any way, but you know, soon enough she's going to be with the head of the body, so it's okay. He never thought, okay, she's back with the body. She could have more love and joy in her life. She could grow, but she's going to be with me soon enough. And then she will have love and joy and fullness, so it's okay. He never thought, I've done enough in Yurka's life. I've shown Yurka enough love for now. The rest can wait till she's with me. No, instead, he said time and time again, soon she will be with me, so now I eagerly desire to give her more of my love. As Dorothy Sayers might say, she might still be silly and quarrelsome, but I must be gentle with her because the time is so short. His insatiable love was never satisfied. He took delight in loving her. He loved Mirka to the end. He overwhelms us with his love because his heart couldn't bear to do anything else. The time is so short and so he will keep on loving us to the end. And what waits for us at the end? An even greater fullness of his love that we can't even begin to comprehend in this life. He will love us to the end, and at the end, we find that that same insatiable, eager desire to shower his love upon us follows us into eternity. Micah was right when he cried out, who is a God like you? delighting in steadfast love. Who is like that? Who loves like that? Jesus, our Lord and Master, our bridegroom and friend, loves us like that to the end. Let's pray. Father, the love of Christ is an overwhelming gift that we certainly did not deserve, and yet we delight in what you've given us. Thank you for the gift of your son, not just that he came, but that he came to love us the way that he has. I pray that as we go out this week, in a world that is still very much different than what we're used to, that that love would overflow from us into everything that we do and every interaction we have with one another and with the world. And we long for the day when we can fully experience your love without end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.